Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, a very warm welcome to uh, this, the latest event in the LSE European Institute's uh, Perspectives on Europe public lecture series, uh, which we organise in partnership with APCO Worldwide. And uh, as you know, we're delighted to be able to offer you quite a star turn uh, this evening. It's in the form of Mark Mazoa, who is currently Professor of History at uh, Columbia University in New York, uh, where he is also Program Director for the Center for uh, International History. Uh, and just to complete the CV to date, as it were, Mark has previously taught at uh, Birkbeck College here in London, uh, at the University of Sussex, uh, and at Princeton. Um, well, uh, with a very close friend uh, in common in Greece and many overlapping uh, Greek interests and uh, affiliations, I have felt uh, uh, a strong affinity uh, with Mark, not least through his, uh, his writings on Greece and the Balkans uh, and, uh, and Salonika uh, for a very long time, even though we only actually met about uh, a year and a half ago. Um, and I think those of you know, who know his writings will know what I mean when I say that few writers convey quite so vividly um, that extraordinary cultural mosaic uh, which, are, which is the Balkans uh, and, uh, uh, and the Eastern Mediterranean. And I'm pleased to say that this is also part of the world where the LSE European Institute can flatter itself, uh, housing, uh, as we do, uh, the Hellenic Observatory, uh, the Centre for Contemporary Turkish Studies, uh, and now uh, LSEE, that is LSE Research on Southeast Europe. So you'll appreciate that we've been on Mark's case for quite some time. Um, but, of course, just as many of you here this evening, I'm sure, will be here because you know Mark also through his other uh, books, those in which he paints on a broader European canvas. Uh, famously, there was a uh, Dark Continent some, what, ten years ago or so now, uh, which offered a, a pretty searing account of Europe's 20th century dystopias uh, and a valuable uh, corrective uh, to the more rose-tinted ideas of Europe and the West and, uh, and their place in the, and their mission in the world, uh, certainly peddled by the likes of me. Uh, and 18 months ago came Hitler's Empire, uh, a brilliantly researched account of the Nazi occupation of Europe. But Mark also paints on a global canvas, uh, thinking and writing about international norms and institutions, particularly the United Nations, including in the press, and you may have seen his pieces over the years in the pages of the FT. Uh, some of you may have heard him on Radio 3 last night discussing genocide and humanitarian intervention uh, with Daniel Goldhagen. So I hope you'll agree that his credentials uh, for sharing some thoughts with us uh, this evening uh, on Europe after the European age uh, are pretty good ones. Uh, so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Mazur. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Morris, very much for that kind introduction and to the LSE for its ho hospitality. Um, it's a commonplace today to say that Europe faces new global challenges, and, and the Lisbon process, and I should emphasize I'm not an expert on the EU, um, but the Lisbon process, and in particular the election of a president of the European Council and a high representative for a common foreign security policy, uh, which was originally, as you know, to be entitled the Union Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, expresses, I think, a decade's worth of ambition to see a unified post-Cold War Europe establish more of a presence on the world stage. 
alongside the inevitable debate about whether the two successful candidates in these elections seem capable of spearheading such a transformation, and that's not a debate I want to spend much time on here, there's a less personalized set of arguments about the nature of Europe's world mission, uh, about whether indeed Europe presently makes or should in future make some distinctive contribution to international life. These are arguments that emerge in discussions uh, of Turkish membership, of European soft power versus American hard power, uh, of the need to defend or extend the reach of a European social model. They've emerged above all in the last few years out of the sense that the Atlantic Alliance has been fracturing and that Europe and the United States are set to move apart. In this brief and necessarily very sketchy set of reflections, I'd like to set these arguments of the present in some kind of historical perspective, one that goes back uh, a little further than the start of the Iraq War, uh, the Treaty of Maastricht or the end of the Cold War. I think that much of the present debate, offered more often than not in a, in a radically uh, dehistoricized form, uh, is plagued by confusions and assumptions that can only be made manifest if one is conscious of the complexity of the concept of Europe itself and its genealogy, a term not merely, this is obvious, debated over for more than a century, but one whose normative charge lies uh, or lay embedded in the foundations of the key institutions of international life. Another way of putting this rather abstract point uh, is to talk about it in disciplinary terms. How should we bring together what are presently the different discourses about Europe, evident A, in the Europology of academic EU specialist studies today, B, the understandings of historians of diplomacy in the Cold War, uh, and C, the understandings of the meaning of Europe are offered by historians of ideas. These different fields do not merely not talk to one another, they scarcely recognize each other's existence. And yet it seems to me that we cannot talk about Europe today unless we have a clear understanding of what Europe meant in the past. We live, globally speaking, in a post-European age. If 1945 marked the moment for many Europeans when their continent, uh, but parenthesis, were they really talking about their continent, ceased to exercise autonomy, never mind global leadership, 1989, the year in which the continent was politically brought back together again, demonstrated the weakness of Europe as an entity on the world stage. And yet never had people talked so much about Europe as they did after 1989, when this weakness was obvious. What I'd like to trace now is the trajectory of a discourse, or rather the replacement of one way of utilizing the language of Europe with another, and to conclude by asking whether these two can be or should be brought into alignment, as some now suggest. Well, the European age, to begin with. Perhaps the primary development in world history in modern times was the ascendancy of Europe to global dominance in the century and a half after the late 18th century. Not that there had not been extensive colonial empires won and held by European powers before then, of course, but the sheer speed of expansion of political control from European centers after 1800, the transformation of global trade, and later in the century, the technological impact of steam, the press, quinine, and new weaponry were unprecedented. The scramble for Africa from the 1880s was merely the most visible phase of a process of European expansion that had started earlier and continued later with the scramble for North Africa and the Middle East that lasted, though it's not usually termed thus, into the interwar period. Now there was to be sure no unitary Europe that was responsible for these developments 
or overseeing them. To the contrary, I still find plausible A.J.P. Taylor's contention that one of the drivers of the entire process of 19th century European imperialism was the emergence in Europe of nationalist rival powers struggling for mastery on the continent and continuing or diverting their competitive energies overseas as well. Politically, of course, the continent had democracies, monarchies and republics, as well as large autocratic empires. It would have been hard to argue that democracy was dominant, especially bearing in mind the limited suffrage available in even the most advanced cases. Capitalism coexisted with barter economies in much of the expansive rural hinterland. Of course, hinterland is really the wrong word, because demographically peasants, largely excluded from the political process and cultural life, still outnumbered everyone else. The big transformation in this respect wouldn't occur until well into the last century. And yet, there was plenty of talk of Europe, much of it galvanized by Napoleon and his effort to transform the continent. In the aftermath of his defeat, the concept of Europe provided a cultural and civilizational ideal for an increasingly ascendant bourgeois class. The Abbé de Prat, who was uncannily prefiguring much of what Europhile liberals have been saying about Europe today, saw in Napoleon's defeat in 1815 the sign of a Europe returning, as he put it, from its military state to its civil state through what he called the rise of a new divinity, civilization. A civilized colonial order, he wrote, would carry civilization and spread European tastes around the world. The process had worked in Russia and North America, he's writing about 1816, and had started in Egypt. It should be applied to the Ottoman Empire generally through a moral, not a territorial, conquest. I'll come back to this idea of Europe's mission being a moral, not a territorial conquest. Hegel saw contemporary Europe standing as the end point of the historical process, Guizot too. Even in Britain, J.S. Mill asserted in his 1836 essay on civilization that I quote, all the elements of civilization exist in modern Europe, in parenthesis he added, especially Great Britain, in a more eminent degree than in any other place or time. And such talk was not confined to philosophers and historians. On the contrary, it entered diplomatic practice, and this is what I mean about the concept of Europe uh, embedded in our international institutions. By the 1840s, it was clear that Europe was not in any sense a geographical term, but rather connoted a set of diplomatic and legal practices that others might sign up to, a kind of mid-19th century international law acquis communitaire. One fertile intellectual elaboration of this belief emerged, as we've learned from the work of Marty Koskenyemi, through the new discipline of international law and its impact on diplomacy. A rationalization of the values of the concert of Europe International law was being redesigned as a kind of moral procedural aid to the preservation of order among sovereign states, and its principles were explicitly stated as applying only to civilized states, much as Mill saw his principles of liberty applying solely to members of a civilized community. In 1845, the influential American international lawyer Henry Wheaton had actually talked in pluralistic terms of, quote, the international law of Christianity versus the law used by Mohammedan powers. But within 20 or 30 years, such pluralism had vanished in favor of a unitary Eurocentrism. According to the late 19th century legal commentator W.E. Hall, international law, and I quote, is a product of the special civilization of modern Europe, and it forms a highly artificial system of which the principles cannot be supposed to be understood or recognized by countries differently civilized. 
Such states only can be presumed to be subject to it as our inheritors of that civilization. Thus conceived, international law defined the problem of global community in terms of the nature of the relationship between a civilized, chiefly European Christendom and the rest of the chiefly non-civilized, non-European world. States could join the magic circle through the doctrine of international recognition, which took place when, I quote, a state is brought by increasing the civilization within the realm of law. James Lorimer, a Victorian international lawyer, suggested there were three categories of humanity, civilized, barbaric, and savage, and three corresponding grades of international recognition. Most Victorian commentators believed that barbaric states might be admitted gradually or in part. Westlake proposed, for instance, that our international society, by which he meant the great powers, exercises the right of admitting outside states to parts of its international law without necessarily admitting them to the whole of it. Others disagreed. Sovereignty was unitary. You could either be admitted and recognized or not. And the case of the Ottoman Empire, and I think this is relevant in the light of discussions of Turkish membership, exemplified this ambivalent process. European states had been making treaties with the Sultan since the 16th century, of course. But following the Crimean War, the empire was now declared in the Treaty of Paris as lying within what the treaty called the public law of Europe. That's what I mean when I say Europe no longer had a geographical meaning. It, it had now a diplomatic legal meaning. In fact, despite its internal reforms and despite the Treaty of Paris, which was something of a blip, I think, the empire was never regarded in Europe as being fully civilized. The capitulations remained in force, therefore uh, uh, making Ottoman sovereignty conditional. And throughout the 19th century, the chief justification of the other powers for supporting first the autonomy and then independence for new Christian Balkan states was the civilizational inferiority of the Turks. But such confidence that European norms should provide an international standard of civilization was broken by the First World War. Not instantly, and the League of Nations didn't abandon the premise. On the contrary, the League remained not merely a highly Eurocentric organization, but one dominated by the established European imperial powers. Britain and France indeed found their empires larger than ever before in 1919. And the system of graduated conditional sovereignty that was imposed on East European states through the minorities treaties in 1919, and on the former Ottoman domains through the Class A mandates, not to mention the civilizational assumptions underpinning the treatment of the B and C mandates in Africa and Asia, all demonstrated that the Victorian ethos of a European standard of civilization had survived the war. According to the British liberal historian Ramsay Muir in his 1919 book, The Expansion of Europe, the victory over Germany had permitted, quote, the extension of European civilization over the whole world. And he distinguished decisively between what he dismissed as imperialism, which was not something we did, and this process through which, quote, the civilization of Europe has been made into the civilization of the world. If you like, the culmination of the process that the Abbe de Prade had heralded a century earlier. And yet, of course, doubts about Europe's continued civilizational validity were evident already in the 1920s and grew. Weimarian cultural pessimism was an obvious expression of this. Spengler, for instance, believing that in the face of Eastern dynamism, Western civilization faced inevitable degeneration. Freud himself, in his analysis of civilization and its discontents, suggested that for very different reasons, civilization carried within it the seeds of its own emasculation. 
With the rise of fascism, and especially Nazism after 1933, and the collapse of the authority of the League of Nations, the pessimism spread to British and French liberals. If you read uh, the historian H.A.L. Fisher's best-selling History of Europe that appeared in 1935, you'll find him reminding historians that they were what he called, quote, trustees for the civilization of the world. But it all sounds a bit half-hearted and unconvinced. International lawyers now openly questioned whether the old assumptions still served. Wrote one in 1938, European civilization has shaped modern international law, but is European civilization still what it was? And if not, how do the changes affect international law? It was a good question, especially at a time when Nazi lawyers were denying that there was such a thing as international law at all. Cultural commentators in the 30s were still gloomier, of course, that European Republic of Letters that had unified the bourgeois intelligentsia of the pre-1914 continent had been smashed. Fleeing the wreckage of Central Europe, Stefan Zweig composed the world of yesterday as a lament to that Europe of the spirit, a Europe that some souls had tried to preserve in the 1920s, but that by the eve of the Second World War seemed to be moribund. And yet it was precisely in this interwar moment of gloom gloom about the continent's internal rivalries and by the sense of looming menace from Bolshevism in the East and for some from Fordism across the Atlantic in the US, that we find the adumbration of the first recognizably political project for Europe. Kudenhof Kalergi's pan-Europa movement, of course, moderately successful as an exercise in publicity, had a strong anti-Bolshevik dimension. I think it's been puffed out of proportion uh, to its contemporary influence by post-war historians of the European idea, but it's significant that the 1920s was when it emerged. The same may be said for Briand's moment in 1929-1930, an interesting prefiguring of French Europeanism that founded on the shoals of the Great Depression. Equally unsuccessful, though for different reasons and not usually thought of in the same breath, was the Nazi idea trumpeted briefly between 1940 and 1943 that it might be Germany to unify and stabilize the continent in accordance with national socialist ideals, of course. An idea that might have proved popular in other hands suffered from the brutality and evident bad faith of those deploying it. Indeed, in some ways, one might argue that the experience of Nazi occupation made this kind of Europeanist talk more rather than less unpalatable across much of the continent for some time after 1945. For many people in Belgium or the Netherlands, for instance, remembering Nazi broadcast on Europe, the lesson of Nazi rule was that the sovereignty of small nations needed to be preserved, small nationalisms needed defending, and Europe could be a slogan for sweeping them away. Say what you might about Adolf Hitler. He had a Europeanist perspective. Europe, not overseas, was his primary focus, the core of his empire-building project, the homeland besieged not only economically but also racially, in his mind, by the twin dangers from American and Soviet power. He saw Germany's task as leading Europe and preserving its world leadership role more successfully than the British or the French had done. Even those who disagreed profoundly with this analysis had no difficulty in seeing 1945 as a cataclysmic moment. It heralded not merely the collapse of Germany, but the end of the European age as a civilization and a world force. Farewell to European History was the title of the book that the 78-year-old German sociologist Alfred Weber published in 1946. It was soon to become a standard trope 
for understanding Europe's new diminished standing in the world. By the time that Felix Gilbert, another historian, published his Farewell to the European Era in 1979, uh, another book that assumes the post-war era is the end of the European era, the idea was commonplace. Looking around the first meeting of the UN General Assembly in London in that same year, 1946, the French Foreign Minister Georges Bideau was struck by the extent, as he puts it, quote, to which Europe is absent. The new United Nations was a product of a very different outlook and configuration of forces from the League. If Europe still counted, it was only as the main theatre of the initial stages of the Cold War, which, like the hot war that had preceded it, was a European conflict before it became a global one. A divided continent, shorn of its imperial possessions, was unable now even to determine its own destiny, lying in the hands of two superpowers with much wider global interests of their own. History itself was now being made elsewhere. That was the meaning of Weber's phrase. In Europe, history had ended to be replaced by social scientific expertise and technocracy. And if you look until recently at the ways in which universities divided up their professional labor between historians and social scientists, you'd have to say they agreed. Uh, Post-45, Europe was not dealt with by historians. It was dealt with by social scientists. But this was not to say that the idea of Europe after 1945 was moribund. On the contrary, uh, the paradox is, if it is a paradox, is that it was precisely at the moment that the old 19th century language of Europe finally disappeared that this new way of Europe emerged. It starts, I think, with Allied war planning and UN agencies for continental recovery and reconstruction. But then the Cold War interposes itself and people cease to, start, cease to think about planning on a continental stage. And those organizations that had been established, the uh, United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, for instance, end up uh, uh, with a much more diminished role than their founders had intended. They're victims of the Cold War's narrowing of geographical and political expectations, but also of a transformation in the kind of work that Europe could do as a concept. And Churchill, I think, was amongst the first to see how Europe could offer an attractive political platform to counter the Soviet threat, hence his federalist moment in 1946 and 1947. But as life returned to the West European nation states, the initially federalist and highly political cast of these initiatives proved their Achilles heel. As I say, a lot of people come out of the war wedded to the protection of their sovereignty uh, much more than they do to any kind of Europeanism. And so, uh, in an involution that's been well documented, the European movement shifted gear and moved instead towards a functionalist sectoral approach that built on the convergent interests of economic interest groups bypassing parliaments and the political system. The bolstering of managed capitalism was the primarily technocratic European project that got underway with the coal and steel community and fueled the common market. It was entirely different to what had preceded it. The new Europe européenne of Schumann, Speck, Adenauer and Monet left the realm of culture, values and the international entirely to one side and it was in comparison with the old global vision of civilizational hegemony, introverted, pragmatic, The latter had been umbilically connected to imperialism and colonial expansion. This kind of Europe talk was an alternative to empire and a safety net, um, a brilliantly successful growth platform for decolonizing metropoles. If it talked of values, it was chiefly in an economic and monetary sense. 
The language and the processes were elitarian, but these were new technocratic elites of specialist ministries. They were not philosophers. It was a vision of Europe, in short, in which administration replaced politics, because politics had been proven to be too explosive. I neither need nor wish to rehearse the brilliant success of this project in the five decades that followed the Treaty of Rome. Despite the inevitable disappointments, the go-slows, the blind alleys, the European Community and then Union found itself capable, as the Cold War came to an end, of vastly expanding its vision of itself both substantively and geographically. The extension of the Union to encompass most of former Communist Eastern Europe after 92 was smoothly achieved, for the first time making the geographic and the political senses of contemporary Europe more or less coterminous. Southern Europe had already been brought in with equal efficiency after the collapse of the dictatorships in the mid-70s. But this reunification, or more properly unification of the continent at the end of the century, merely raised the old question afresh. What was Europe's proper place in the world? Did it have a mission? And if so, how should that mission be defined? The events of the past decade have inevitably perhaps shaped the kinds of answers that have been given to these questions, and I wish to explore two or three of them now. But I can't refrain from noting in passing how rarely one sees people argue that Europe, the European Union that is, need not have any particular place in the world, that it is unnecessary for its intellectuals and commentariat to fret over the nature of its special mission. I shall return to this in a moment. Take the case of the debate over Turkish membership, for example, a debate underway well before serious negotiations started four years ago, five years ago now, four and a half. Positions for and against this are commonly presented in terms of Europe's character and its global role. It's often argued, if you're in favour of Turkish membership, that the accession of a large Muslim state will improve the global attractiveness of the European model, demonstrate its lack of exclusivity, and allow the Union to play a more prominent diplomatic role in the Middle East than it's so far managed to do. On the other side, it's even easier to find opponents of the idea couching their opposition less in terms of the practical considerations involved for Union policymaking than because it will contravene what they regard as the Europeanness of the European Union. Soon the culturalist dimension is on the table again. Islam is incompatible with European values, whether because historically it's argued that the continent has a special affiliation with Christianity, Judeo-Christianity, or, on a different tack, because Islam has theocratic dimensions that Europe's political institutions repudiated in favour of secularism. You find the first kind of argument, the Christian argument, more commonly, I think, in Germany and Austria, the second kind of argument in France. It's hard, of course, to see how they can both be right, which should tell us something useful about the slipperiness of culturalist accounts of what Europe stands for. Very similar kinds of arguments are evident in recent debates over immigration as well. The racial argument against immigration is rarely heard in mainstream circles, still too discredited by Europe's own recent history. But culturalist critiques of mass immigration, supposedly threatening Europe's heartlands with colonies of alien intruders, have made their way into serious discourse. The Spenglerian quality of these gloomy broadsides is evident, I think, for instance, in Christopher Caldwell's recent anti-immigration reflections on the revolution in Europe, which is a kind of mainstream reworking of some of the ideas about the degeneration of Eurabia that have been percolating in neoconservative think tanks in Washington for some time. Multiculturalism, far from being something Europeans should be proud of, has in fact weakened the Europeanness of Europe on this account. Well, what is that Europeanness? 
in Caldwell's Burkean account, it's a strange combination of social conservatism, high culture, and as an afterthought, perhaps, human rights. Ironically, perhaps, what many neocons see as the problem, Europe's toleration of cultural pluralism, its liberal expansion of rights of various kinds to indigenes and newcomers alike, its belief that politics should be conducted without force, others have seen as the mark of its success. And the pacific quality of its statesmanship, its retreat from force, its pursuit of consensus, is what liberal commentators from Timothy Garton Ash uh, to Andy Moravchik have singled out as what Europe has to offer the world in the future. I've already cited the Abbe de Prades idea originating from the early 19th century, that the superiority of Europe's contribution to the world lies in its ability peacefully to spread its values. If this idea not surprisingly disappeared from sight while the memory of fascism was still fresh, it since re-emerged with a vengeance. The credit, perhaps, for the post-war recuperation of this idea is owing to the journalist Louis-François Duchesne, an early supporter uh, and associate of Jean Monnet. It was Duchesne who, in 1970, I think, spoke of the European community as the world's first post-Westphalian political arrangement, an exemplar of what he called civilian power that offered a way to peace for a torn world. Naturally, the idea has been combated since its inception by realists who mock the thought that old-style national interest and the threat of interstate anarchy could so easily have been laid to rest. But with the emergence of the democratic peace thesis of political theory in the United States, Duchenne's version of the European achievement has won new support. In 2000, for instance, Joschka Fischer, then foreign minister, offered one version of this when he described the European Union as a form of political arrangement based, quote, on the rejection of the European balance of power principle and the hegemonic ambitions of individual states that had emerged since the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Some argue that an entirely new way of doing politics has thus emerged in which legitimacy is obtained not through parliaments and parties, not even the most ardent defender of the EU rests entirely easy on that score, I think, but rather through the gentle application of regulatory power and the introduction of administrative and legal norms. If it may look less popular than the old kind of politics, it's also less violent. This idea that Europe has a special democratic mission gathered force, of course, in the aftermath of 9-11. As the gap grew within the Atlantic Alliance, it became tempting to contrast the realist, trigger-happy, unilateralist, heavily-armed behemoth led from Washington with the more softly-spoken, wiser multilateralists in Brussels. Contrasting attitudes to the death penalty, to international human rights and criminal law seemed to bear this out. Robert Kagan contrasted jokingly Mars and Venus, but this was the kind of thinking that was in the air. In this way, Europeans began to define themselves anew, not against Bolshevism, not against barbarism, but against the supposed political values of the United States of America. And there is, of course, also a social democratic variant of this, one in which identifies the singularity of Europe's achievement not in the realm of law or the creation of new emollient forms of politics, but in terms of social welfare, of the European Union's ability to tame capitalism and defend the continent's social model. Supporters of this view point to its intervention in environmental, health and labour law, to the striking contrast between the EU25 and the USA in terms of in income inequality, longevity, infant mortality and workforce unionisation rates. But before deciding on the validity of these claims, 
I think it's worth putting them in their contemporary context. It was 9-11 and above all the war in Iraq that split the Western alliance down the middle, left liberals torn and encouraged Europeans to see the EU, or much the same thing, to urge it to become a counterweight in hegemonic terms to the United States of George W. Bush. It was thus in the wake of the invasion of Iraq that Tony Judd ends his magnum opus on post-war European history by extolling, quote, Europe's emergence at the dawn of the 21st century as a paragon of the international virtues, a community of values held up by Europeans and non-Europeans alike as an exemplar for all to emulate. And it was in his Why Europe Will Run the 21st Century, published at the same time as Judd's, that new Labour thinker Mark Leonard looked forward to a new European century led by a continent able to synthesize, in his words, the energy and the freedom that come from liberalism with stability and welfare that come from social democracy. Jeremy Rifkin's language in his book the previous year, The European Dream, was even less restrained. And I quote, The European Dream is a beacon of light in a troubled world. It beckons us to a new age of inclusivity, diversity, quality of life, deep play, sustainability, universal human rights, the rights of nature, and peace on earth. Products of their moment, such effusions, counterparts to despair at Bush's America were quickly countered. Peter Baldwin has mischievously suggested recently that all this represented what he calls in his book the narcissism of minor differences, that in fact Europe is too varied to allow for meaningful generalization, and one may as well argue for the basic similarity of economy and society on either side of the Atlantic as for difference. In a less positive vein, Perry Anderson, in his new work on Europe, sees it all as nothing more than self-deception. In fact, he argues, Europe remains exactly what it has been since 1945, a satellite of the American empire bound to the same set of capitalist pressures and neoliberal strains. Autonomy, in his reading, is an illusion. Talk of European values merely masks the reality of weakness and the unwillingness to face up to that reality. There is a striking convergence here between Anderson's Trotskyzant critique from the left and right-wing realist critiques of European Union degeneracy. Neither buys really the idea that the old politics is dead, and they both see the European achievement as internally precarious and liable to implode. Far from seeing the way to a new European century, to the adumbration of a new global role for the continent, they live in anticipation of a new phase in the perennial struggle for geopolitical mastery, as Germany slips its bonds, Russia flexes its muscles, and the rest come running too late, no doubt, to the lukewarm embrace of the Americans. I think they're wrong. I think that the historical trajectory has, in the face of any commonality of values, produced two quite divergent outcomes in the United States and in Europe. The former, a single polity, largely self-sufficient in energy, and with a large internal market allowing for a relatively small external trade footprint, has tilted resources sharply where external relations are concerned from diplomacy to armaments. The latter, the European Union, is a composite polity whose members, despite the recent shift towards a common foreign and security policy, have made sure that they retain nation-state autonomy in their own external relations. The continent, in fact, spends lavishly on arms, second only in the world to the United States. But because it does so on 25 separate armed forces, much of this spending is completely useless. In two areas, on the other hand, the diplomacy of foreign trade and humanitarian assistance, increasingly conjoined, the European Union has been highly effective. 
But I think the critics are right to criticize the efficacy of this model. The European Union remains unable to convert its powerful trade and aid presence into diplomatic leverage. It has proven weak in its dealings with Russia, ineffectual in the Middle East. The so-called Barcelona process has, to be crude about it, poured money down the drain in the Mediterranean to little tangible return. And even in the Balkans, whether in battling criminality in states that have now been admitted or in nation building in candidate members and potential candidates, there has, I think, been relatively little to show for the European Union's efforts. As for the domestic dimensions of this model, this too looks a lot less sustainable than it did in 2005. The world's most dynamic knowledge-based economy, that was the goal, if you remember, set in 2000, has foundered. The continent's university systems are in crisis, and there seems little public willingness to divert sufficient funds to improve them. Demographic slowdown and now the extreme fiscal tightening imposed by the European Central Bank, monetary tightening, have pushed down growth rates. Had it not been for the Eastern newcomers, the statistics would look even worse. As income inequality grows and budgetary pressures bear down on healthcare spending, the European social model faces a stern test. To conclude, in this climate, I suspect we'll hear a lot less about the coming European century and the continent's discovery of a new form of diplomatic power. The Lisbon process was a victory of sorts for those who wanted a more prominent global role for the European Union. But the way that the successful candidates were chosen and the character and backgrounds of the candidates themselves suggest that this victory will be short-lived. National electorates, it seems, still do not want diplomacy to be conducted for them at a European level, and the result means that the European Union will remain a much weaker world force than its economic weight would suggest. Its capacity to spread democratic values and human rights turns out to have been dependent on the leverage brought by the pledge of eventual membership. Absent that, and the European model may not turn out to be exportable at all. Does that matter? The idea that Europe has a special civilizing mission for the world needs to be handled with circumspection, I think. It has a history, as I've tried to show, uh, sketchily, and the history is not a pr pretty one. That history may have been forgotten, I think it has been forgotten, by most Europeans, but its memory is fresh in the former colonial world. Europe may see itself in decline, adjusting to a multilateral world. Others remember it in its ascendancy. Does that mean then eschewing all normative pretensions? Certainly not. One would not have the memory of Nazism and the war forgotten, nor the way that memory helped redefine and reconfigure democratic values in Europe. The surpassing of, well, let's call it Westphalian sovereignty, has been a real achievement. The internal project, rightfully introverted for so many years, has been largely accomplished, but its internal contradictions on the one hand, a pledge of the desire for greater popular acceptance and legitimacy. On the other, the attenuation of democratic forms in the Union itself. On the one hand, the promise of social solidarity. On the other, the deflationary caution necessitated by defense of the euro. These contradictions will be with us for years to come. In these circumstances, one wants to think carefully about how exactly Europe should project itself abroad. There are values and there are interests. So far as the latter are concerned, coherence and weight and decisiveness in external affairs are desirable. But building those up may also push the European Union back towards more traditional understandings of diplomacy and security. So far it has crept at a snail's pace towards the creation of coordinated security, diplomatic and defence bodies that would help realise this. But as for values, 
I'm tempted to say that we've surely had enough talk of values in the global arena. Let the Europeans tend to their own fields according to their own lights. Europe can surely have a continued and increasingly attractive meaning for Europeans without Europeans having to dream of a universal Europe spreading its light over everyone else. Thank you very much. Well, um, Mark, um, thank you for a wonderfully rich and historically informed and provocative uh, polemic, really, uh, you've offered us. Um, uh, I'm sure it's going to elicit lots of questions. I hope it does. You've kindly agreed, uh, as per our usual format, to take, to take some questions. Uh, we have about half an hour or so, so I hope you won't, I'm sure you won't be shy in coming forward with them. Um, just to be boring, just to remind you, please wait for the roving mic. Put your hand up. Um, I think... Um, in terms of, do you want to cluster questions or take them individually? I, I think I would tend to favour individual questions. I think for this kind of thing, it's, sure. it's uh, um, to make sure nobody gets short shrift. Uh, if you can just wait for the mic, roving mic, and please say who you are and where you're from or what your affiliation is or whatever. So, we'd like to kick off. Kevin Featherston. Thanks. I would also give my congratulations for the lecture. I wonder in this uh, finely balanced uh, tour that you gave us, whether the question is actually being set too high. Um, Europe may not be exporting its normative value, uh, values perhaps as uh, strongly as in the past, but it's not obvious that there is major competition from some other power which is more successful within the world. We don't think of so much about the uh, normative power of the United States at the moment, even with Obama. And I wonder in terms of the success of the European Union, your point about uh, enlargement seems to me perhaps just a shade too dismissive, that in the context of the post-Cold War world, isn't it a major achievement of the European Union? And indeed, isn't perhaps the European Union the major external agency for the democratic transition and stability of Central Europe, possibly in the future uh, other uh, border areas as well? So I'd have thought that internally the European Union's success is uh, quite significant in terms of the post-Cold War world. Mm -hmm. I strongly agree with your final sentence that the Europeans perhaps shouldn't be so bothered by this question. Mm -hmm. But I'd have thought that um, overall the question about uh, Europeans' uh, normative uh, force in the world is qualified by the fact that there don't seem to be other powers which are having more success than Europe at the moment. Well, um, you may be right, uh, and uh, I think that this debate, uh, such as it was, uh, was, as I, as I tried to suggest in the talk, very much um, triggered off by a, a, a sense of panic after 2003, 2002, that the United States and and Europe were going in different directions. Uh, and that sense of panic um, has subsided with the election of Obama, uh, and therefore there may not be the same sense of polarity as there was then. Um, the, the debate uh, uh, can be traced still, I think, um, <sighs> in Washington think tanks where maybe there is a greater sense of beleaguerment in some think tanks, but maybe think tanks that didn't welcome the election of Obama. Uh, but as far as Europe is concerned, you may, you may be right. We may be talking about a kind of 
uh, discussion that uh, you know had a shelf life of a, of, of a few years. But I, I, I would defend it a little more than that. I mean, there's been a series of uh, not merely political pronouncements, but um, um, exhortations within European Union documents to ensure that any common foreign and security policy should be linked to a democratizing uh, agenda, one, one which advances fundamental freedoms and, and human rights. So I don't think that I'm making that up. Not that that in itself is a bad thing, but where it links to the kind of older civilizational arguments that I was talking about, I think we need to be wary. On enlargement, I, I completely agree. Uh, um, uh, in the sense that, uh, again, what I tried to suggest was where um, eventual membership offered lever, the European Union was uh, efficient and successful uh, in imposing its democratizing norms. Um, uh, it manages in Southern Europe and it managed it in Eastern Europe. Uh, it, it, it's uh, getting a little trickier now in um, uh, much of the former Yugoslavia, but I don't think there's any reason if people pay attention to the problem to think that the outcome will be any different. My, my point was really uh, how are people thinking about uh, Europe's presence in the, role, uh, uh, presence in the world uh, beyond what any eventual union might be? So those parts of the world where you can't offer membership as a as a lever. And there it seems to me uh, the tools at hand are much more limited. David Charles. Um, I, was, I, I enjoyed your talk very much. I wondered, I mean, I share your analysis about civil liberties where eventual membership or association isn't on the table, but I wonder if there was some other set of values where Europe has been very effective at exporting, and these might loosely be called regulatory values. I mean, think of it. Could you imagine a situation where the U Japan would accept the US telling it how to regulate one of its major industries, but it adopted all Europe's chemicals legislation two days after REACH was agreed? Mm -hmm. Large parts of Latin America has adopted willy-nilly Europe's competition legislation. Russia has most of Europe's financial services legislation, which are just cut out and paste. Mm -hmm. Even on things like immigration, European readmission agreements, agreements for where fences should... I mean, I'm not saying I necessarily support this. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, precisely because this is, if you like, low profile, that this is where one could say there is, albeit in, the, in quite a confined way, but quite an important way, and one, if one extended it to things like the ISO, the National Standards Organization, mm -hmm which is dominated by the EU and the US. They're both agenda setters and veto players. Whether on many of the things that form part of our lives and other people's lives within and out Europe, Europe's been quite powerful. Mm. I, I, again, I, I think I completely agree. Uh, and that is one of the ways in, in which soft power is a reality. And, um, uh, I, I do think that the realists are wrong about this. Uh, something new has been... Um, built and the regulatory, uh, uh, um, the sort of uh, under the table uh, uh, um, uh, push for a certain conception of regulatory standards has been very, very successful. Um, that, that's, that's right. Um, that is not um, highfalutin enough for most of the people who are um, trying to define a new place for Europe in the world. Uh, they're not, they're not 
they wouldn't be content with resting as you know the world's regulator. Um, but they maybe maybe they're wrong because I, I agree. I think I think it's been quite successful in those areas. And I, I thank you for some of the ones that I didn't know about. Um, gentleman over there, caught my eye, and then I'll go to the other side. Uh, thanks very much, Michael Williams. Um, making a similar point to the previous speaker, perhaps what Europe offers to the world is not so much a set of values, but a mode of governance, perhaps, a way of reconciling uh, uh, national sovereignty with uh, a mechanism for addressing uh, common problems. It's a way of uh, offering uh, collective action, really, overcoming problems of collective action. I remember reading an article in the FT a few months ago by Gideon Rackman when he talked about the way uh, Europe was offering a model for global governance through the G20 and how heavily represented the European uh, powers were in the G20, how Europeans were playing such an important Important role in the World Trade Organization, in the IMF. So perhaps it's, this is the way in which uh, the European Union is contributing to the way the world is developing by offering a model of governance that has a wider application to the world as a whole. Because if you think about the, the problems facing the world, they are problems of collective action. And this is what uh, the European Union has focused on. I, I myself have no problem with the, with the thought that other people might find, uh, outside Europe, might find attractive all sorts of things that Europeans do, because I think that the achievement has been remarkable. As I said, the, the question is really, uh, what do you do with that thought that the Union offers a model of this or that? Uh, um, does it provide the basis for um, uh, some kind of missionary effort to encourage other people? That's where I start to worry. Uh, uh, as I say, uh, uh, one should be very happy if other people think this is the right way to do things and then go about doing it. But I, I suppose in a way that, that I'm coming at this out of uh, a much broader set of arguments about uh, what has happened to uh, the notion of intervention around the world and where the limits should be to intervention. And so, um, as I say, because Europe has this history in, in which it in, intervened on these kinds of civilizational grounds, I think we have to be careful about the slippage. So, I, 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 you know, I, I agree with you. I think there are many things that, that are done in the Union that w would be... Uh, you know, wonderful if they could re be replicated, but I don't think it's up to Europeans to try to get them to be replicated around the world. I suppose that's what I'm saying. Thank you. Piers Ludlow. Just, sorry. Yes, um, I wonder whether I might, so I, I appreciate the difficulty of spanning 150 years or 200 years in, in, in a, in a three-quarter of our lecture, so I suspect my question may uh, be un an unfair one because of that, but I wonder whether um, you might like to comment briefly on a period that I suspect you slightly pressed the fast-forward button when talking about in your lecture, namely the the period which you characterized as, as sort of the, the post-1950 period, which you characterized as one of its sort of internal, internalized technocratic advance, because I would suspect, so I would suggest from my own work on that very period that the debate you're talking about in, a sense, in your whole lecture, in a sense, is very active during that period also. 
the European desire to have an influence, the European desire to matter in the world does not go away. It not, is not necessarily terribly effective during much of that period, although I think you could argue that in some of the sort of what might be termed near abroad, particularly the Mediterranean uh, region, it, is, it does have some effect. But the basic European volition, the basic European desire to have an influence in the world to matter um, is pretty alive and kicking throughout the 1960s, the 1970s, and the 1980s, even if it takes place, it has to sort of play second fiddle to the wider reality of the Cold War. Well, I mean, I would like to hear more from you because you've worked on this and, and I haven't. But I suppose what would be interesting for me to know would be um, the desire may have been there, but how did it express itself? Um, the, the decision to... Uh, uh, invest in some kind of rudimentary diplomatic um, machine was not present as far as I remember in, in the founding of the common market. That came significantly later. And the budgetary resources were pretty limited for a long time to do anything of that kind. Uh, and all of that has, is a product, what, of the last 20 years at the most? Um, so is, is it, would it be fair to say that there's a history of aspirations and, uh, and hopes and rhetoric that, 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 that operates on one level and then the history of implementation, which is a more recent one? I don't know. That would be my question to you. Really. Um, Mark, if I may um, just put a question to you. Um, the, uh, I just suggest that... Um, uh, European values. It's almost bred in the bone for Europeans uh, to think of their values as exportable universal values uh, and, and so on. Um, and amongst the courses we do here, we have a course called The Idea of Europe, where we inexorably get back to the two, if you like, cornerstones of the European intellectual and ethical traditions, namely the Bible and the Greeks, but very synoptically. Uh, and from the Bible we get the idea, of course, um, that we are all uh, God's creatures and equal in the eyes of God. Uh, and uh, from the, the Greeks and subsequently in the Enlightenment and so on, we get the idea of human beings as all possessing the faculty of reason and being rational and purposeful uh, agents. And that these are features which actually mean that when we think about human human beings, we think more in terms of what unites us than, uh, than divides us. We think of a universal human nature. And it is absolutely, it's almost our default is to think about the value, is to think of our values as therefore being universalizable by dint of the fact that they relate to, they follow from human nature um, uh, or from an idea of the individual as having a soul or whatever. It, it runs that deep. Um, and, and since what your, um, uh, the, the implication, the, uh, the, uh, the, the conclusion one would draw from, uh, let's say, the more kind of retrenching um, idea of Europe's vacation in the world which you suggest, is what I'm saying is that it really goes against the grain. Um, and it's hard to imagine European politicians elaborating a discourse which is essentially inward-looking on just, you know, il faut cultiver votre, notre jardin, um, or whatever. It, it's, just, it's just not what Europeans do or how we think about morality. 
Um, so um, that's not to say, to say that we shouldn't go down the road or, or, or exercise more prudence or caution as you're suggesting, but fundamentally it, it, there's something about it that sticks in the craw of Europeans and of Westerners, if I dare put it that way, in general. And I don't think Europe and the United States are, are at all different in that, in that regard. Well, you know, I, 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 I come from a university that has taught something called Western civilization since 1919 and, and still does, and we have... Uh, long and interesting arguments about uh, the usefulness of such a course, and we now have um, other courses on non-Western civilizations, and um, I, I've learned quite a lot from teaching that, and one of the things I've learned is that there are different universalisms. Um, that's one of the things. So whose universalism is spread around the world uh, may be a question of who has power. Um, and it, it may be, as you say, that, that Europeans are used to thinking in universal terms. I certainly think they have been over the last century. Um, but we are waking up to the fact that uh, other people outside Europe may also think in universal terms in rather similar ways, but as a result of different traditions, leading in different directions, and we're not necessarily in a position where we can ignore those uh, those traditions in, in, in quite the same way. That's one, one thought that I have. So that as the power balance shifts, the intellectual balance will necessarily shift. And the other is that I think that you may be right, but the Europeanness of all of what you described is a relatively recent afterthought. In other words, the connection between uh, Bible on the one hand, uh, Greeks on, uh, and, and, uh, and Europe uh, is perhaps a product of the last 200 years, um, 250 years. Uh, well, maybe that seems like a long time, but I think that those philosophies uh, were being studied in geographical Europe long before that without being thought to connote in any way a sense of European mission or Europeanness. So um, I, I, I think, you know, that the history of these ideas of European Universalism or Western civilization is an interesting one. It's a much more modern one than we tend, we tend to think. Thank you. Okay, more questions. Any from this side of the room? That, um, um, yes, Jonathan White. Thanks, yeah. Um, thanks very much for the lecture. I think I'm very sympathetic just on this last point about um, your skepticism to, to some of the values talk we've had in recent, recent discussions of Europe. Um, I wonder whether... <laughs> it is perhaps worth distinguishing between two kinds of scepticism one might have towards that. One is uh, scepticism towards politics in the language of values. In other words, we should be a bit more hard-headed, a kind of uh, an interest-based language or some other vocabulary register of politics. Uh, or one, of course, we could say, well, there's nothing wrong with the principle of politics. It's, the problem is when you territorialize those values. In other words, you put them under the, the sign of a certain territorial uh, unit. So you make them European ones and you play them out as uh, in some way connected to a certain uh, arena with all the problems that may follow from that of uh, positing an undue homogeneity or positing some mm -hmm. Uh, kind of politics which is insensitive to diversity of some kind. So I, I wonder whether um, the argument which uh, can be made against uh, the values talk is not necessarily an argument against Europeans being value-oriented or principled in their kind of politics. It could be that, but it could also be against doing so under the banner of a certain territorial denomination, European values, rather than um, a kind of valued politics which is separated from the territorial uh, denomination. Thank you. Um, 
What's the context in which there's discussion about European values, about what Europe stands for? Right now, it seems to me primarily uh, a context uh, of debates on immigration. Uh, is there one set of values that Europe stands for that immigrants should be allowed or encouraged or forced to sign up to? Do immigrants bring with them different values? It seems to me that's the arena in which there is this talk of, of values. Um, and I think it's inevitable that there would be that talk. Um, but often one finds in, in, in that talk uh, the most preposterous assumptions underpinning it about what, in fact, European cultural history, or religious history for that matter, has actually been about. That's, I suppose, all I'm saying, and, uh, and perhaps add to that. I mean, it's an interesting distinction that you make, um, but um, I think often it's difficult to disentangle your two options, that when people talk about values, they're talking about. When Sarkozy is talking about the debate about French identity, uh, it has implications for, for France. Uh, it, it's not a very deterritorialized debate in that sense. So it may not be very easy to disentangle those two things, if, I, if I've understood correctly. Yeah. Are there any questions from that side of the room? Yes. Yeah, and then. Uh, yes, and then hopefully you can be able to take the gentleman, yes, there, and then the gentleman at the far end afterwards as well. Yeah. Uh, many commentators uh, talk about a resurgence of nations, the nation-state idea in Europe uh, uh, with regard to, particularly to this, the, 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 the rumblings over the Lisbon uh, ratification and the appointment of uh, two relatively obscure figures uh, to head the foreign policy and to head the uh, uh, to head Europe and also uh, with, with respect to Ireland's uh, uh, unilateral response to the banking crisis it seemed to show uh, a nation state concept of Europe was, uh, was uh, coming to the fore rather than the alternative um, well I myself have always been very persuaded by um, Alan Millwood's wonderful work on the history of the European Union, which e emphasized the uh, close interconnection between the revival of the nation state in Europe after the Second World War uh, and the emergence of the common market. Uh, and for him, there was no contradiction. The contradiction existed in the minds of the Federalists. Um, but the Federalists, uh, although important in the story, uh, actually got the outcome wrong. Uh, and what you had was the product of, of negotiation bargaining amongst nation states. And, uh, and I think that if you accept that perspective, despite uh, the increasing complexity of, of the web of institutional arrangements that is the European Union in the last few years, the fundamental insight remains true. And as you say, uh, these uh, recent developments would seem to confirm it again that nation, nation states uh, are, um, and the political elites in nation states, presumably the electorates behind them, are really unwilling to forfeit much more power than they have so far done uh, to the European level. Thank you. Um, I'd say there's a gentleman right over some towards the wall at the back. Um, yeah. uh, uh, thank you very much for this very interesting lecture. Uh, I just want to ask about, let's go to the Middle East. And now uh, uh, Mr. Obama 
just took a, a newly office in, in the United States. Can you speak up a bit, please? Uh, I'm just talking about now, let's talk about the Middle East and the European mission towards achieving peace in the Middle East. Because, you know, they, the European, they have been waiting for long and long um, until maybe some opportunity can, 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 be, can take, take place. And now Mr. Bush is, has been like a, a past tense, fortunately. So do you think now the European will take serious? Are, are they going to wait for Obama to achieve, to achieve peace in the Middle East? Or do you think they will, they will have something to do and or to act now? Well, uh, this is one question. This is one, one question. The other one, could you comment, elaborate more on your last sentence when you said about the, the European values and the spreading en enlightenment to, to the whole world? Could you please elaborate a little bit? And where do you think the flaws in the European system? Thank you. Um, well, to take the, the, the Middle East question first, uh, um, you know, my personal opinion is that this was an issue. In, uh, uh, if there was any issue uh, uh, on which the European Union uh, might be expected to um, push strongly and use, find some way of using its very considerable economic leverage uh, in the region to um, uh, push uh, for the kind of settlement that I, I, I think was uh, regarded, is regarded as desirable in Europe. This was the one issue where you'd think it would have done so. Uh, and yet, in fact, um, at a whole series of points over the last uh, three or four years uh, and uh, up, up to now, it seems to me that it has taken a back seat. Um, and has perhaps regarded itself as simply a member of the quartet, but then other members of the quartet do not regard themselves just as members of the quartet. So there is uh, something going on, and I don't know enough about the politics of this to know what it is, whether it's simply a failure of political imagination, uh, uh, lack of uh, coherent agreement amongst the members of the union. Uh, I don't know what the answer is, but, but my, own, my own feeling is there was apparently little to stop the union doing much more than it has done diplomatically in, in the Middle East uh, at a time when its uh, view on what should be done differed very profoundly from the Americans. Now, of course, it differs much less, I think, but that, that could be a, an equal argument for doing, it doing more, and it doesn't. Um, on your second question, what do I think the flaws are in these European values? Uh, well, you know, first of all, uh, and this, I suppose it's my major point, you have to say what you think these values are, and I've tried to get across, I think, that Europe is, to all intents and purposes, uh, let's exaggerate slightly, the concept of Europe is an empty box. You put into it what you want. Uh, and you have to understand historically that that is how it has functioned. Uh, so, you know, you put into it uh, uh, traditional family values if you want. You can put into it multiculturalism if you want. So be clear about what you mean by Europe. And in fact, when you, when you start to be clear, you may find that you don't need to talk about Europe at all. Personally, I'm in favor of human rights and democracy and so forth. What's the, what's the flaw in that? Um, there's no flaw intrinsically in that. I, I, I think they're admirable things. I, I do think there, there, there is a weakness in telling other people what to do in general. 
And perhaps I feel that because I'm primarily uh, a historian of a very small country, and if you, uh, if you study small countries still more, if you come for small countries, you have a thing about larger countries and more powerful states telling you what to do. They may tell you to do admirable things, but you don't like them telling you what to do. And I think that's something that sometimes Europeans lose sight of. Paul Taylor. I have a question about uh, your association of uh, European values with a particular, a particular territory. Um, it's often said that expansion to the East really reflected a triumph for European values. But one could also argue the, argue the opposite, that, that that actually detracts from the, the unity, as it were, of these values. That what one is talking about, really, is Western European values. And it so happens that to some extent they have been picked up by the East European members, but of course many of them are still to be really implemented. And a kind of incidental second question on that is, where do do you put Britain in this? Uh, Is it it really part of the European social democratic set of values, or is it more to do with what has been called often Anglo-American values? I'm really questioning your, your linkage between European values and a particular territory, because I think that when you look at it more, when you do look at it, uh, I hate to say more, more closely, but you begin to, to see that, that there are different areas which reflect different so Perhaps I can ask you, what do you think these values of Western Europe are? Well, the, the social democracy side, um, the... Sorry? Solidarity. Solidarity. Uh, I'm being helpful in this. Uh, all those things that, that come under the heading of social democracy, as compared, say, with the American values, that tend to be somewhat different in, in stress, and which arguably many of the East European states are more attuned to than those in the, in the West. Well, if I was going to be mischievous, I would say that surely there was nothing more solidaristic than the people's democracy in Eastern Europe. Um, The kind of welfare arrangements that they had there trumped what you had in France. But, you know, so that's not what you're thinking. You're you're thinking of the the political uh, values of the the now, perhaps. Um, But the political, you know, political preferences in Eastern Europe right now would have to be understood in the light of that history, and they may they may change. So that's a very, for me, that's a very contingent understanding of values. And yet the other problem is, if you try to historicise those values, one gets into hot water as well. Uh, I'm not sure that there's a long history of solidaristic political movements in Western Europe that couldn't be found elsewhere, for for instance. So uh, this is why I, I. I think one has to be so careful uh, in, in using this language of, of values at all. Um, where does Britain stand? Um, there are many countries that you, in, inside what we commonly think of as geographical Europe that you could say have one foot in and one foot out, and Britain is an egregious example. Uh, in, in, in Greece, you sometimes talk as, about things as though you're in Europe, and sometimes you talk about going to Europe. Um, so I don't think Britain is, is, uh, is the only case, but it has its own, its own specific history, its imperial history, of course, that make, makes it quite different. 
Um, gentleman in the front row in the white jump. Well, I think a lasting European value, almost exclusive to Europe, is the product of a native son of Britain, John Locke. It was transmitted, relayed, uh, not through conquest or, or crusades, but because it was a desirable value, and it's still on. It's still working, I think, and there's no real alternative uh, to that. In other words, what it stood for and what it still stands for. Uh, basic rights, democracy, and so forth. So forth. Is there an alternative anywhere? Is Confucian coming back, or Buddha maybe? I don't know, perhaps they are. But they, they're not still visible, whereas this is a tangible product of Europe. But Thanos, when you say there's no alternative, you see, what I'm not sure about, is that a, is, is that a power political judgment, or is that a moral, moral uh, uh, you know? In 1940, there were plenty of alternatives, and some of them lasted a long time. Um, and there may, be yet again. So it seems to me that the understanding of history which says it must end up in a kind of Lockean world, that's part of our tradition, that's something that should be historicized, but that to me is not necessarily a good guide to the history. It's a life, yes it is a life. Uh, yes, so, so, but you have to be careful if you make what works your, your criterion, because then everything is a matter of your of where you stand and when you're standing there. <laughs> and in the long run, and so on, yes. yes. Good, we've got time, we're going to take one more, I'll take one more question. Um, gentleman at the back has caught my attention, right at the very back, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to ask about the other universal non-Western cultures. I mean, we, we are living in a world with the growing emergence of China. And I would like to maybe hear your reflections on the response of the European universalism toward the growing other uh, universal cultures like Chinese one. <laughs> I, th I think that would either be very long or very short. And I think at this point in the evening, it, it ought to be very short. Perhaps that should be the subject for another lecture. Or we can talk about it afterwards. Thank you. <laughs> okay, good. Well, um, Mark, thank you very, very much. Um, it was a fantastic uh, talk. We've had a, a standard which is more than commensurate with uh, LSE on one of its very best days, and that's principally thanks to you. You also gave me the wonderful Python-esque quote, I'm afraid, which I won't let you forget about, which went along the lines, say what you like about Adolf Hitler, but... Uh, <laughs> which will go down as my quote of the day. Um, but seriously, uh, seriously, you gave us a tremendous talk and you gave um, interesting and full answers to the questions. Thank you. We'd love to have you back soon. Thank you. Thank you.